want to encourage you, if you haven't already, to take your Bibles and find Psalm 98. Uh, you may have noticed, as Emily read Psalm 98, that um, it starts with a command. And it's a command to sing. Now, I've never really talked about this before, uh, and there's good reason. But when I was 17, I went to something called Boys State. Boys State was uh, sort of a mock state government where people would run for office and there'd be speeches and motions and bills, and I didn't pay very good attention. I remember only two things, in fact, from Boys State. One is that someone stole my racquetball rackets. And then the other thing is that after uh, we had some group activity, the, there was a, a boy in front of me who turned around and he said to me, you're the worst singer I've ever heard. <laughs> now that's the kind of thing that sticks with you, I'm just going to say. Um, it sticks with us. We've, we've actually built it into some of our, you know, strategies, even in the way that we do church. You didn't know this. But uh, in order to encourage people that were, you know, we, we were online for a long time, right? In order to encourage people to get back, I didn't do this, but somebody put the microphone that, that like, picks up the whole room right down here. And I sit right down here. And so when people are online, they hear me, which is an encouragement, I think, for them to come back to church so they can hear all of you, because you actually sounded quite good this morning. Yeah, even last Sunday, we sang some song that I, that I liked, and I was you know, singing out with gusto, and Marcia goes, just... Just that. <laughs> and I'm sure she meant something very complimentary by it. But I heard the words of that young man all those years ago because it sticks with you. Now, why, why do I tell you that? I tell you that because singing loud doesn't come naturally for me. I've been shamed out of it, actually. And in the text that we read, it begins with this command to sing. And I don't want you to assume that, well, he's a pastor, so of course he sings loud. Or that somehow because I have this role in the church, it comes naturally for me. I want you to know it doesn't. And I've got to figure it out just like you've got to figure it out. Because ultimately, God says, I want you to sing. I mean, there are a lot of other things God could have commanded that I would have enjoyed more. Just going to say. But he said sing, and so I'm going to have to figure that out, and so are you. So why should we sing a new song to the Lord? We should sing because all creation enjoys the victory 
of our great King. That's what's here in Psalm 98, that all of creation enjoys the victory of our great King, and that is a very good reason for us to sing. Look at the first three verses. They were read just a moment ago, but they start out with this command. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. See, there is this one command to sing, and then there is this list of all of these reasons that you and I need to get over ourselves and sing. And I, I, even before I get to the reasons, I want to just put pause on here and have you recognize that the church of Jesus Christ is very self-conscious, and we are here too, about our singing when we're together. For 2,000 years, Christians have made it a priority to sing a new song to the Lord on the first day of every week. Not only do they do that all around the world, they have done it throughout history. Let that sink into you. How many times there has been a new song sung to the Lord. In fact, Psalm 98 is some of the reason that you are here this morning so that we might do what it says. So sing a new song to the Lord. Now he begins to list his reasons. Sing a new song to the Lord, first of all, because he has done marvelous things. He has done marvelous things. Do you know any of those? Can you pull off one or two or three or a dozen? Can you rummage through your memory and come up with anything that God has done for you? Maybe you need to remind yourself of the Scriptures. When God, say, called Abraham to himself and a 100-year-old couple had a baby... Or maybe you need to think about um, how God delivered Israel from Egypt and parted the Red Sea. Maybe recalling Sunday school lessons about David and Goliath might help you. But the Lord has throughout history done marvelous things for His people. That's a good reason to sing. But maybe you have stories of your own. In fact, I hope you have stories of your own. I want you to rehearse and think about and develop stories of your own. Things that you dreamed about or prayed about, and then God did it. Just this morning, Marcia and I experienced one of those things. Someday I hope I can tell you about it. But 
this marvelous thing that the Lord did, unbeknownst to me, really, until just a couple days ago, began in 2007 and just came to fruition this morning, and the Lord did marvelous thing. It was our anniversary this past week, and I, of course, had the idea of eating dinner. Marcia, of course, had the idea of doing something special about eating dinner, and she said, maybe, and we've been married a long time, so this was like a full evening project, but she said, maybe we should think about, you know, is there something that we can remember from every year we've been married? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it, was, it was actually that hard. We told somebody about that, and they said, did it take all night? <laughs> it pretty much did. But many of those things ended up being marvelous things the Lord has done for us, some of which we prayed about, some of which we didn't, and give us a reason to praise and worship Him. So sing to the Lord because He's done marvelous things. The next thing is His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation for Him. His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation for Him. Why should you sing? Because of the power of His holy arm which works salvation for Him. In other words, God has saved. He has brought salvation, certainly to you and to me. I mean, in fact, most of us, when we think about salvation, what we think about is that we think that um, salvation means Jesus and me. We're on good terms, and when I die, I go to heaven. For most people, that's kind of the way they think about salvation. But even in this psalm, salvation is much more extensive. It means far more than just me and Jesus are getting along today. Salvation, if you read the psalm, has implications for all peoples, for all nations, and for all of creation. It could not be broader in scope and more magnificent in its outworking. Salvation is cosmic in scope. And the people in all creation long to see the day of God's ultimate salvation. So he brings salvation. But notice the object of the salvation. This, this is part of why I'm telling you salvation is bigger than just you and Jesus. Who is this salvation for? It says that his right um, arm... Uh, has brought salvation. His right hand and his holy arm have brought salvation. For whom? Look at your Bible. For him. For him. Well, clearly, he doesn't need to be saved, right? But it brought salvation for him, for God himself. In other words, God is the reason that God brings salvation to His people. There's something about the character and the wisdom and the love and the mercy and the strength and the goodness and the power of God that makes Him say, you know what? I'm going to bring salvation. 
And the satisfaction that he gets for bringing salvation is indicated here. He brings His right arm and his mighty power have brought salvation for him. It's very much like the language of Ezekiel chapter 20. And I think it's important that you see this because we tend to get so wrapped up even in ourselves and we miss at what God is doing in the world, what God is doing throughout history. Ezekiel 20 verse 9 says, But I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived, in whose sight I made myself known to them in bringing them out of the land of Egypt. Why did he bring salvation? Why did he bring them out of Egypt? He acted for the sake of his name so that it would not be profaned, so that all of the world would know that the God of Israel is the true God. In other words, he saw, yes, he saw deliverance for them, but more than that, he saw glory would come to himself. That he would work salvation for the sake of his own reputation. In other words, there's a theological depth to the salvation that God works that you'll overlook if you merely think, when I die, I'm going to go to heaven, that's it. Because God's salvation is much broader, much bigger, and much deeper. His right hand and his holy arm have brought this salvation for him. Well, it says that his arm brought salvation, okay? I'm sure none of you have seen the arm of the Lord. Yet the Scripture uses that phrase all the time to tell us of God's power and His um, inclination for action. That God is going to act in some strong way. The Scripture is uh, full of these kind of references. One is in Isaiah chapter 53. It talks about the arm of the Lord. It says, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Okay, so the, the, the prophet picks up the language of Psalm 98 and asks the question, To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And that would be great if it was just some standalone random verse that we read and like. But it's not. Let me, let me read to you what follows. In other words, this is how the Lord shows His mighty arm. Isaiah 53, verse 2. For He grew up before Him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at Him, and no beauty that we should desire Him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now it is virtually impossible, I think, to read Isaiah 53 on this side of the cross and not see that he's talking about Jesus. Even in the New Testament, they ask the question, is he reading this text, is he, is he talking about himself or someone else? And the evangelist said he's talking about Jesus. The ultimate revelation of the power of God's right hand in His holy arm is the cross and resurrection of Jesus. Psalm 98 is interesting because some psalms give you all kinds of help, right? They say, David wrote this when he was in the cave hiding from so-and-so. Or he did this after so-and-so betrayed him. And there's some kind of a guide to how you should understand the text. Some have suggested that Psalm 98 is purposefully um, non-contextual so that you can use it any time, so that you can remember it and it can apply to any particular worship service you may have. But Psalm 98, for really the history of the church and even before the church began, was used in worship of the Lord, and it pointed always to Jesus. At the time of Jesus' birth, they were looking at Psalm 98 saying, surely this is the Messiah. I know this because Mary, after the visit from the angel, broke out into okay, a new song like Psalm 98 says. And in Luke chapter 1, verse 51 says, He has showed strength with His arm. Scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Her prayer includes phrases from Psalm 98. Then the next phrase here in Psalm 98 says, The Lord has made known His salvation. Okay? We're still talking about the salvation. And we're still connecting it to the Christmas story. Okay, Jesus, um, Mary was pregnant, she has a baby, first part of Luke chapter 2. End of Luke chapter 2, they bring Jesus to the temple to dedicate him, as parents do. And they bump into a man named Simeon. Simeon's old man, he'd been praying all his life that he might see the salvation of the Lord. And this is what he says in Luke chapter 2, verse 30. Now, Lord, you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Psalm 98. That you have prepared in the presence of all people. Psalm 98. A light for the revelation to the Gentiles and a glory for your people, Israel. So even at the time of Jesus' birth, they were able to read Psalm 98 and say, this is about Jesus. So how much more should we be able now, knowing what we know, knowing the cross and the resurrection, say, Psalm 98? Oh my goodness, this is about Jesus. We've, we talk here some 
about reading the Bible as though it's truly the story of Jesus. And it is. It was on the minds of people when Jesus was born. Jesus himself, uh, oh, it says in Luke 24, opened the scriptures and told them about himself. Beginning from uh, Moses and all the prophets, told them about himself. The way Jesus read the Old Testament was to say, the Old Testament is about me. The way we read the Old Testament is to say, the Old Testament is about Jesus. Surely Psalm 98 points us in that direction. Then it continues. God has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He's revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. In other words, God didn't God is making for himself a people that are part of multiple nations so that the world might see that he alone is king and God. I mean, how cool is it this summer for us at New Life Church that we get to have the Malonies here who get to talk not only about the Dominican Republic but about Myanmar. Or that Bruce Tussell joins us this summer to talk about what God is doing in North Brazil. It's only going to be a matter of days, really, when the team that we just sent yesterday to Alaska returns, ready just to chatter it up about what God did in and through them while they were serving in Alaska. And shortly after that, the hard tongues will return from Sylvania, where we sent them to do an English camp uh, with one of our global outreach partners. And then beginning this week, there's going to be some uh, Basque students come uh, join us at New Life Church from the Basque country in Spain. And God is doing something throughout the world here. Which is exactly what Psalm 98 says. They just really do need to connect the dots between church life and what the Scripture says. But how great that we get to experience the righteousness that He is revealing in the sight of the nations. And then it continues in verse 3. He has remembered His steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. God has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness. That's sort of the standard way of reminding God's people that God keeps his covenant. It's, it's a word for his covenant faithfulness. In other words, what you need to know about God is that God has put himself out there. He has pledged himself that he will in fact make you his people, that he will in fact take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, that he'll put his spirit within you. That is his new covenant, and he has ratified that new covenant as Christ died on the cross and shed his blood and sacrificed his body for you. In other words, what he's saying here is that God is trustworthy. His word can be counted on and what he has told you will happen, will come about, and you can place your faith in him. 
And he continues, doesn't he? The ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. One of the outcomes of one of the outcomes of God providing salvation for his people is that other people notice. That other people see that, yes, in fact, the God of Israel, the God of the Christians, is a different God. There are implications or there are results from the work of God among his people that filter out through all the nations. I mean, I just have to say to you that of all of the things that go on in our world, so many of them have been touched by the work of Christ that that you can't, in the Western world anyway, deny the centrality of Jesus. You can be an atheist and argue to be an atheist, but the way that you have to do that is is you have to argue through a Christian lens. You have to say uh, something about Jesus. And the way that you think about it and the way that you get medical help is from hospitals formed by Christians. The whole Western culture, the education, everything has been touched by Jesus. The ends of the earth, literally, have been touched by Christianity. They have seen the salvation of our God, whether they recognize it or not. One of my favorite stories in the Scripture is the story of Rahab. Um, And when, after after God had delivered uh, Israel from Egypt, nobody was happy. Forty years, what'd they do? Round and round and round the wilderness. And everyone's grumbling and complaining, but The result of it, after those 40 years, what happened? They ended up crossing the Jordan, knocking on the door of Jericho, talking to a prostitute who said, oh yeah, 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 count me in, I will help you. Because we all know that your God is the real God. And he will, he will give you this land, so I'm going to join your team. Just remember me after you win. And she had heard. See, she was one of those pagans that had heard of the salvation of God. And that kind of thing still happens. Because of the greatness of the salvation of our God, because it reaches the ends of the world, because he's done marvelous things, and these are all reasons to sing. I want you to know I took a little more time on the first part, this first stanza, than I will on the rest. So in case any of you are looking at your watch, thinking bad of me, I meant to do that. But that brings us to the second stanza. The second stanza starts in verse 4. After these reasons for you to sing, he spells it out a little bit more. Verses 4 to 6. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. So any of us who have verdicts rendered on our singing, this is good news. The bar is lower. It's merely a joyful noise. 
Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre. With the lyre and the sound of melody. The lyre, just so you know, is spelled this way. When Emily read it and talked about the lyre, I was a little concerned that some of you had maybe a different word in mind. L-I-A-R, but it's L-Y-E-R-E. Lyre, which is like a harp or some kind of stringed instrument. And the sound of melody. Anyway, with the trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise to the Lord, or to the King, the Lord. And so this stanza starts and ends with making a joyful noise. In other words, this this part of the psalm is really about how you're going to do this. And one of the things I want you to notice is that this joyful noise or this shout is first of all a shout of joy. In other words, enjoy enjoy yourselves. Enjoy what God has done. But it's also a noise. It's also loud. And one of the things that we've talked about here a number of times at New Life Church is that your, and this, this shapes kind of how we make a band and how we do worship on Sunday morning, is that we think that the primary, the primary instrument of Christian worship is the human voice. In other words, the way that we give praise to the Lord is first and foremost with our voices. So the band is not going to do a performance. They're going to try and give you enough that you can rise to the challenge. That's what they're trying to do when they're playing up here. Because the call is for us to make the joyful noise, and then we add instruments. We add a stringed instrument, a lyre, and we make melody, but then we, may, then we add a trumpet and a shofar. None of us have probably done any worship to a shofar, which is a big ram's horn, that they would use to announce a military victory. Because it could be heard for a long, long ways. And so somebody, messenger would come, say, hey, the guys over there, they won today, and they would blow the shofar to send a signal of victory. And really, that's what God's salvation is, isn't it? It's this signal of victory, which the shofar expresses. The trumpet, on the other hand, is the instrument of the inauguration of the king. The trumpet declares that a new king is coronated today. And so he wants to make sure that, yes, we sing, but yes, we do it in a big enough and bold enough way that everyone gets the message, Jesus is king. And so my question for you is simple. Does the quality of your singing match the quality of your salvation. When you understand the gospel and, its world, and the worldwide implications of the victory of Jesus, you sing. But <laughs> you really sing. If you, if you get it, you really sing. And even if you're the worst singer ever, you make a joyful noise because of this victory. Then, this last stanza expands it a little bit more. Verse 7, let the sea roar and all that fills it. The world and those who dwell in it. 
Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. You can't help but notice here, can you, that now all of creation gets involved. And when I say all of creation, if you think back to page one of your Bible, right, when God made the heavens and the earth, what did he make? He made the heavens and the earth, and then he separated the sea from the dry land as sort of a way of saying everything's contained there. And here we have the sea and the dry land and everything that fills both of them singing for joy to the Lord. You, creation itself longs for the Lord to reign and to come as judge. Note the rivers clap their hands and the hills sing for joy. You're thinking, oh, I've never seen a river clap its hands. You may have seen the sound of music and know the hills are alive. But that's not the same. Because the hills here are personified as those giving praise to the Lord. In other words, all of creation is longing for the day when the salvation of God is fully experienced. And when that happens, he will come as a judge to the earth. He'll judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. And we want to make sure that you notice that. The reason for their joy is that he will come to judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. It is the judgment of God that is the cause for rejoicing. If you're like me, you're thinking, judgment? That doesn't make me very happy. In some respect, that's because we don't really get what judgment is all about, particularly judgment with righteousness. Because this judgment in righteousness means that the world is unrighteous, that things are wrong. I mean, I'll tell you, your experience of judgment would be different if you were in Myanmar, as uh, Michael uh, suggested earlier, wouldn't you? And all the injustice happening there, to have somebody come and bring justice would be the best thing ever. And we have had it pretty good, so good that we don't really experience firsthand that level of injustice. Maybe ever, but certainly not on a regular basis. So that when we think of judgment, we think of like getting in trouble for a speeding ticket. Like, ah, oh, I really don't want that to happen. I really don't want judgment to come. But if on the other hand, you had the experience of the majority of the world with the level of injustice they have to the promise that God would come with equity, that he would come with righteousness, that he would make those wrongs right and that broken system, he would fix it. Oh my goodness, that would be the best news ever. 
And it's the best news for those who are in some unjust, laboring under some unjust uh, world or a dictatorship or worldview or whatever. But it's also the best news for all of creation. Because the sea's excited about it, and so are the hills, and so are the rivers. Why would they be excited about it? Because they too experience the brokenness that was brought on by sin. The Apostle Paul, in really as many words, is pretty clear about it. He says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Now it's, again, that's the kind of thing that because we live here in Oregon, we don't really compute that. We go out on a Saturday afternoon on a kayak or under the shade or have a barbecue, and we're thinking, this is just about the best of all possible worlds. But I just want to say, it's not. It's not, it's, it's not going to be long. In fact, the day might not even be over before creation itself does some catastrophic thing, whether it's a tornado or uh, some kind of cyclone or an earthquake. We don't know. But all of creation is groaning the pains of childbirth until now. And it longs to be freed. It looks forward to that day when Jesus will return and bring the new heaven and a new earth, and everything will be made new. And guess what? If it's good news for the hills and for the ocean and for the rivers, for those people who recognize Jesus and the salvation that he brings, that that salvation is for them, It's off the charts. The good news for the seas and the rivers is nothing compared to the good news for God's people who embrace Jesus as their Savior. And so Psalm 98, for its entire history, has been on repeat throughout history, sometimes week after week after week. There are traditions of the Christian church that read Psalm 98 every week. Because Psalm 98 reminds us that there is a reason for the church to sing. That there is joyful cause for celebration. And so I have to ask you, what is the song track that plays in the background of your life? As you talk to yourself or as you go about your day, what is it that's playing? Maybe it's stories from your childhood. Maybe it's things that disappoint you. Maybe it's uh, all the things that are dark or bad. But what you have when you have the Lord is you have a soundtrack 
of joy. That you can just get up in the morning, you got to figure out how to play it, right? But remind yourself of it, hit play, and then sing along all day. And then sing along. Because the scope of this good news that Jesus is King has gone out throughout the ends of the earth. All of the nations and all creation enjoy it. Why not you? Because if you trust Jesus for His salvation of your soul, you are the chief beneficiary of His victory. And so, feel free to speak about it. Feel free to sing about it. And find ways to remind yourself of the good news. So let me pray for us, and then guess what? You're going to have another chance to sing. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, I'm certain that my words have been inadequate to express the reasons that the victory of Jesus is important to us. That the salvation brought by a resurrected Christ is so great that even the inanimate world longs to be made whole again. Father, would you give us day by day as we walk with you more and more reason to enjoy the salvation you've given us. And Father, thank you that we can trust you And thank you that you've included us in these promises. We thank you in the name of Christ. Amen.